This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for October 12, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our guest on this episode of C-SPAN's The Weekly is a man who knows both how to play the game of politics as well as the players. Starting in the late 1960s, Haley Barber left his senior year of college to go to work on then-candidate Richard Nixon's presidential campaign. Two years later, he was running the 1970 census for the state of Mississippi. In the 1980s, he served as President Reagan's political director in the White House. And by 1993, he became the chair of the Republican National Committee. In 2003, he was elected as Mississippi's 63rd governor. He joined C-SPAN to talk about midterm election politics, President Trump, the Republican Party, his career, and the current political climate in America. Governor Barber, thanks for stopping by the C-SPAN radio studios. Let's talk about the state of the Republican Party post-Brett Kavanaugh. Where is it right now? Well, stronger today than it was before the Kavanaugh nomination and uh, confirmation. There's no question about that. The, the Democrats, as you've seen in special elections and the elections in 2017 in Virginia and, and uh, New Jersey, they've ha- they have had more energy. Their people are mad. They're agitated. And we didn't have as much. And that gap is pretty well closed because of the way Kavanaugh was treated. And there's a, a lot of revolt, revulsion, if that's a word, among our people. And it brought intensity of the two parties up to about the same level. Uh, clearly, Trump, uh, a lot of people don't like the way Trump acts, don't like some of the things that he says. But most Republicans really like his policies. Uh, and they And they particularly like the results. I mean, we've had a real spurt of economic growth, and it's across the economy. You know, in the in the Obama administration, we had 2.1% economic growth. You didn't have 2.1% everywhere. On the bi-coastal granola belt, you know, the economy was doing pretty well. But in the heartland, you couldn't tell the difference between the recovery and the recession. The, the uh, economy had no growth or actually was shrinking. And a lot of Wall Street plays for companies to increase their value. Well, they'd buy another company, and then they would take that company and they would let employees go. They would close factories. They would, and so in the heartland, while uh, somebody on Wall Street may have been doing just great on those kind of deals, in the heartland they were losing jobs. Kids couldn't find a job. Small business was hurting. Uh, very few times in American history have we had fewer small businesses formed, but we did a lot of that during the Obama administration. So out in the heartland, there, there's a lot of the hopes for Trump have been realized. You worked in the Reagan White House, and Ronald Reagan had a really tough 1982 midterm election. Why? Uh, bad economy. Remember, we... From about 1973 until 1982, I think we had four different recessions. And the last one, which was in 81, 82, uh, unemployment went to 10.8%. Uh, the highest, I think, in my lifetime, and I'm 70 years old. Uh, and But even as that was happening in November of, of 1982, and, and by the way, 
unemployment peaked, hit its very top in October of 1982. Timing couldn't have been worse. But people were sensing that things were going to turn. Not enough for it to matter at the ballot box, but when Reagan was saying stay the course, it turned out he was giving us very good advice because he stayed the course, and we had a gigantic amount of economic growth. In fact, one of the great differences between the Obama recovery of eight years with 2.1% economic growth on average was the huge increase in growth under uh, of GDP under Reagan. I mean, you had years where there were 6% economic growth. You had many, many, many quarters where there were 7.5%. Uh, the number of jobs created was enormous. A great deal of the reduction of the unemployment rate in the Obama administration came, back, came about because of people dropping out of the workforce. Uh, it was not nearly as so much uh, number of people added to the to the employed, but in the Reagan administration, it was almost all that. The whole uh, drop from unemployment from from ten point eight way way down came from actual job creation, and not from people dropping out and therefore no longer being counted as unemployed. You know, Steve, a lot of people don't realize if you quit looking for a job, you're taken off the unemployment. L- numbers by the government. So if a whole lot of people quit looking, unemployment rate goes down, even though employment doesn't go up. You understand politics as a candidate, as a governor, as a former party chair. So how is this White House and President Trump specifically framing the argument for voters to go to the polls in a couple of weeks? And are they doing it the right way? Well, there's not a lot of message discipline, let's just say say that. I mean, he, the president loves to go to rallies, and he does very well there in terms of energizing the base. And that's his main motive, his main method of operation uh, for, for getting ready for an election is lots of rallies, lots of energy, lots of uh, acclaim for the president and for the people he's there to, to, to endorse. Uh, but usually in American political history, the candidate and his political team are trying to increase the size of the base. President Trump focuses on making the base harder, stronger, instead of larger. And so we see him with job approval of about 44%, underwater a little bit, but not nearly as much as he was underwater uh, last year, or even back, uh, even back in the spring. Then, and the, the tax cuts, the economic recovery, the regulatory reform, and all the economic benefit and growth has has helped him come up and close the gap between approved, disapproved, from about fifteen down to about eight. So that's real progress, and. In congressional races, that will that can be material. Uh, it can be material in in, in uh, uh, Senate races and governors' races because, as we saw in 2016, if the country votes 50-50, that doesn't mean each side wins half the races because Democrats tend to be much more heavily packed into urban districts, and there are a lot of 80 and 85 percent Democrat districts 
where there may be a lot of 60% Republican districts, but they're not a lot of overwhelmingly like two to one, three to one, four to one, as there are with the Democrats. So if, if the Democrats carry New York by two and a half million votes, they may lose the rest of the country. And and that's what happened in 16. You know, all of Mrs. Clinton's margin was in California and New York. If you took those two states out, she uh, she lost the, the popular vote in the rest of the country. And presidential elections are 51 little elections, you know, because it's state by state. And, and in the same way, this year for the midterms, a lot of House districts will be won by an overwhelming majority by one party or the other, which means if both parties get 50%, that doesn't mean both parties get half of the members of the House. Generally, the Democrats have to run two or three points further ahead because, as I said earlier, there are a lot more Democrat districts that are just 80 90%, and there are very few Republican districts. So the Democrats win a district four to one, Republicans win a district three to two, and Republicans get one seat, the Democrats get one seat. So as an aside, Haley Barber, Democrats are saying it's time to consider getting rid of the Electoral College, two of the last three presidents winning the electoral vote, but not the popular vote. Well, that's really what the founding fathers intended. Uh, not that necessarily one would win the electoral vote and not win the popular vote, but they intended for the the election of the president to be a combination. And that's why we, we have a, an electoral college where for each seat in the House, state gets one electoral vote, and for each of its two senators, states get an electoral vote. And that protects smaller states to some degree. It also makes the candidates for president much more, makes it much more necessary for them to campaign across the whole country and not just focus on a few states where there are a whole lot of votes. So you don't think it's going to change? No, no, sir, I don't. Let's talk about the midterm elections. We are about three weeks away, but the conventional wisdom right now is that the House potentially could flip to the Democrats. The Senate stays Republican. Do you buy that? I think those are the most likely outcomes. I don't think anything is certain. I think that it's a very, very uh, marginal situation where I, I think the Democrats' odds of winning the House are are maybe 60-40, 55-45. The Republican odds of keeping the Senate are about the same, maybe not quite as good. But it's a, it's a peculiar thing because we're, we are comparing apples and oranges. In House races, there are one congressional district, a few hundred thousand people, and in Senate races, much more diverse populations, much larger populations, but uh, you see that a lot of this differentiation this time comes from the fact that while every House seat is open, I mean is up, and there are a lot of open House seats that we'll talk about in a second, but only a third of the Senate. So it, in just peculiarly, this time of the senators who are up for re-election, it's 25 Democrats and nine Republicans. Uh, it's a function of the election that happened in uh, 2012 when the Democrats had a very good Senate election. I remember 1986 where the Republicans had, had a very good Senate election in 1980 
and in 86 we lost eight seats and so you're they're having to defend a much 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 larger number and a number of those senators that Democrats are having to defend are running in states that Trump won, including by very large margins. So the map favors the Republicans this time in the Senate races. Peculiarly, it happens that there are 26 Republican governors up and only 10 Democrats. So the same day you have all these Republican governors and all these Democrat senators. I mentioned 1986. In 86, the Republicans lost eight Senate seats, gained eight governorships the same day. You had 12 states in the United States that day voted for a governor of one party and a senator of another party. That's very unusual, and I don't think we'll see that this year, but it could happen because of the, the peculiar matchup. On the House side, uh, a big problem for the Republicans, 41 retirements. Uh, it's a whole lot easier for a party to win the other party's open seat than it is to beat the other party's incumbent. And this very large number of, uh, of retirements poses a problem for the Republicans. Let's talk about impeachment, because some House Democrats say if they regain the majority, that will be one item on the agenda. As you look at where the Democrats potentially could be in 2019 and lessons from where the Republicans were in 1998 when they went after Bill Clinton, what advice would you give the Democrats? What are the lessons from Newt Gingrich and the Republicans? Well, I, I think it would be very, very hard for the Democrat House to resist the, the, the shrill call from their base to impeach Trump. I mean, you know, you and I have been around this a long time. We've never known what used to be called the loyal opposition, the minority party, is now called the resistance, as is, is, is if there's some army fighting some conquering nation, you know, the, the Nazis or something. And their tactics in the and, and shrillness in the Kavanaugh fight, I think, it just reminds you, none of those senators, except Joe Manchin, because of the state he's from and because he is relatively moderate, none of those people were thinking about voting for Kavanaugh. Most of the people that got up and hooped and hollered at the hearing about uh, Dr. Ford had said in July they were going to vote against him. Uh, one of them actually said he was going to vote against him before he knew who him was, before President Trump said who he was going to nominate. A lot of that is being generated by tremendous power from the left in the Democratic Party. All sorts of different names like Me Too or Black Lives Matter or Antifa or whatever. But this is a very, very powerful push against these Democrats. There are a lot of people, and I'm one of them, that think the whole Dr. Ford deal got leaked by Senator uh, Feinstein because she was in danger of losing the, Demo losing the runoff in California to somebody well to the left of her. And because, you know, most people here would thought she's just safe as she could be. But the Democratic Party has moved left and very far left. And so even somebody like Feinstein felt threatened enough. And I, I just think it'll be hard for them to resist the call to try to, to try to impeach Trump. What did you tell 
Speaker Newt Gingrich in 1998. I told him that I thought it was not good judgment to try to impeach the president. And uh, uh, it is interesting that what we've just been through with Kavanaugh was the grounds for impeaching the president, uh, that that's, uh, that this was about sex and, and issues about women. And and this was, of course, the, the, uh, the, the, the exact case at the time, Monica Lewinsky, was just a follow-on of several previous things that went all the way back to to, to the campaign, but I a I didn't think that the public would support it. B I didn't think it would get passed by the Senate, and C I thought it took away from it. We had a lot of energy after after winning in '94 and '96, the keeping Congress that was aimed at policy. I mean, welfare reform. The first balanced budget in in a generation passed by this Republican Congress, and to change the subject in in that sort of way, I just thought was not uh, productive. I wasn't party chairman anymore. Uh, I'd gone out after the '96 election, but uh, I had a great friendly relationship with Newt, and still do. Uh, but I just uh, I, that was the way I felt about it, and the, the House guys uh, went ahead. And yet, Haley Barber, you probably understand hardball politics more than anyone else. So do you understand where the Democrats are with regard to Mary Garland and the vacancy left with the death of Antonin Scalia, left vacant for more than a year because of the Republican leader, Mitch McConnell? Uh, I, I don't think it was more than a year. Uh, I think it was uh, almost a full year. But l- let's talk about the true precedent here. In 1968, you had a Democrat president, Lyndon Johnson. You had overwhelming majorities in both houses of the Congress, particularly in the Senate. And when President Johnson tried to put Abe Fortas to promote him when a vacancy occurred, he tried to put Fortas up as the chief and bring on somebody to take his place. It was the Democrat Senate that wouldn't allow that to happen. It wasn't the Republicans. It was the Democrats. And the the point essentially was this is a long appointment. Whoever gets this appointment is going to serve 20, 30 years. And should we let an outgoing president make that decision, or should we let the next president make the decision? And again, it wasn't the the Republicans that did that to Lyndon Johnson. It was the Democrats. And I think, frankly, it's good judgment. Will we see that again, potentially in 2020, if there's a vacancy? Well, if the Democrats have a majority in the Senate, they may want to do that. But do remember... 1968 was Johnson's last year of two terms, so so there was no way he was going to be president again, just as it was Obama's last year of two terms, and no way he's going to be president. Presumably, President Trump will be running for re-election in 2020, so it's not exactly apples and apples. How do we best understand Donald Trump as a candidate, as a political figure, and as president? I, and I wish I had been smart enough to say this. There's a fellow named Peter Thiel, who's a uh, business guy in California, who's a friend of Trump's apparently, who said that the reason the press missed the election so far is that the press took Trump literally but didn't take him seriously, and that the voters took him seriously but didn't take him literally. And... Uh, there, there are a lot of times 
when the president will say things that uh, maybe I wouldn't have said the same way. But a, a lot of those times, I don't think he means it literally. You know, and maybe maybe he means the wall literally, but almost anybody will tell you that knows anything about border security that having one big old wall from the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific Ocean is not the best way to have maximum security of the border. And I'm one that believes, I think we need immigration reform, but I believe the first thing we have to give the American people is border security, not only protecting the border directly, but you know, Steve, almost half the people here in the United States illegally entered legally. They had a visa, maybe to be a student or maybe to be a work, whatever. But when the visa expired, they just didn't leave. And neither party has ever put into place a system that works so that you can make people, when their visas expire, so that you can find them. And they either have to have a good reason to get an extension or you make them leave. And then they can apply to come back. Nobody's ever done that. So when we talk about border security, we're talking about, in my mind, internal security as well, making people whose visas expire either get a new one or go home. Now, uh, having said that, the American people want border security in that sense first. But but hardly any Americans are for sending 11 million people home or 13 million people home or however much it is. First of all, at least half those people have probably been working at the same job five years or more. And golly, to, to have to replace them, to make the employer have to replace somebody that's been a great employee and working for all this period of time, those people pay taxes. They, If they're good citizens, if they hadn't committed a crime, if they take care of themselves, if they pay their taxes, then there ought to be a system for them to come in, confess that they have come here illegally, get put on probation, be charged a fine, that is, essentially be charged just like any other nonviolent crime in the United States. Most, most of those, you plead guilty, pay a fine, get put on probation, and if you serve out your probation, don't do anything wrong, then you're back, back going. And, and that's what most people think we ought to do here. I want to share something you probably read from the Clarion Ledger in your home state of Mississippi. Haley Barber knows where buttons are and when and how to push them. Is that a fair description of you? Well, it's mighty flattering. Uh, I, I'm a, I've been doing this 50 years. I dropped out of college in 1968 and ran 30 counties in Mississippi for Nixon. First time I ever saw a political poll, Steve, six, six percent of Mississippians identified as Republicans. Today we've got, you know, all of state government, state official but one. We've got three out of four in the House. We've got both senators. Uh, so it's been a huge change, and and you learn a lot during that. I, I, I will tell you, sometimes you learn more when you lose than you learn when you win. Uh, and then I was blessed to uh, have the opportunity to run the political office in the White House for President Reagan for a couple of years. My, my point is I have had a lot of experience, but I'm going to tell you, nobody's ever seen anything like this. This is a, this is a, in both parties, this is a very different way of operating. And in the Reagan White House, the, the way we were organized and worked uh, was not 
at all of what it seems like is the way they do it in the Trump White House. Everyone seems to have a Ronald Reagan story. What's yours? I have so many Ronald Reagan stories, but, you know, Ronald Reagan was a gentleman who was so considerate of the staff and was so nice to us. And there was a book about Reagan that somebody wrote from the White House and asked me to write a chapter. And two of the three stories I told about how nice Reagan was to everybody, you know. But my, I guess my favorite Reagan story, which we were talking about immigration a while ago, was uh, when Gene Kirkpatrick coined the phrase, the blame America first crowd. Uh, one time we were on Air Force One, President Reagan said, uh, when you hear the blame America first crowd, apply the Gates test. I said, what do you mean, Mr. President, the Gates test? He said, drop all the gates in the world and see which way people run. They all run to America. And we ought to be proud of that. We ought to be understand that is because we are the greatest country in the world, and it's the place where people know if I get to America, I'm going to have the best chance I've ever had any time. And so I often think of the Gates test when we talk about, uh, talk about Ronald Reagan. If you were in the White House the day after the November 6th election serving as political director or advisor to Donald Trump, Based on what we know now, the House will either be a narrower Republican majority or a Democratic majority. What advice would you give him for the next two years? How should he govern? Uh, first, he should try to find ways to get some Democrats to help him. That's going to be harder because they're going to have a harder push for discipline in the House by the Democrats if they get the majority. But it needs to be obvious. You know, when Ronald Reagan was president, Sometimes the Democrats had a 100-vote majority in the House, yet we passed Reagan economic plan, Social Security reform, welfare reform, I mean, uh, immigration reform, the 86 tax bill. I mean, we passed some huge legislation, and always with a bunch of Democrats uh, supporting us. I mean, the last thing we wanted was a party-line vote, I can tell you that. We need, And Reagan worked on it, and he compromised. You know, we think of him a very conservative president, and he was. But he always recognized that when you're in the minority in the House, you've got to be willing to compromise and know what to compromise on. He used to say, if you can get 65 or 70% of what you want, take it. Uh, and then you can try to come back later and get to what's around. But if you can get something good, take it. And uh, the President Trump is going to have to uh, more than now, he is going to have to try to work with some Democrats, and uh, and 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 to do that, he's going to have to offer them the the right hand of fellowship, as we say. But can the parties do that? You talked about the toxic political environment. Can we get there? Be much harder than it was in 1980s when Reagan was president, or even when Clinton was president. Uh, and but it it requires the effort. Now I think you're going to see a whole lot of uh, regulatory and other administrative work done in in the next uh, next two years if the Democrats win the House. Just like you saw Obama, most everything he did was by executive order, didn't get voted on. Even the Iran treaty, which all of us recognized it as a treaty, and they described it as not a treaty because they didn't want to have to get two-thirds vote in the Senate. Uh, I think you'll see uh, 
Trump try to do that? Uh, and, and probably with success. I think you'll see the Democrats be litigious as you can possibly be. There's a story today in the papers that, that uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg is paying lawyers to work in Democrat state attorney general's offices to try to fight Trump administration uh, regulatory administrative uh, moves. And uh, so I think he will end up having to win a lot of these things in court because the Democrats have a real habit of if they can't win it at the ballot box, they go try to win it at the courthouse. What has Haley Barber learned from political defeats? Well, uh, first thing I, I would say that I learned, most people are nice. What we're going through today is, is very unusual from what I experienced in my career. I have a lot of Democrat friends. You know, I'm very conservative, uh, or at least I used to be considered very conservative. And uh, but I have all sorts of friends on both sides in the news media, even believe it or not. Uh, that's that's gotten harder and harder for a variety of reasons. But I think you got to start off with the attitude: I, I'm going to work with people. I got elected governor of Mississippi, the second Republican governor since Reconstruction. Everybody thinks we had so Republican state. I never had a Republican majority in the state house of representatives. I had a Democrat majority every day I was governor for eight years, but we hardly ever lost a vote there because we reached out to people, we welcomed them, we included them, we we talked to them, and and uh, that we need more of that in Washington. We need more of. Uh, in, in fact, state governments are more likely to be like this today than the federal government is. We need more people that are trying to f figure out how to pro how to solve problems as opposed to how to make political points. Reagan used to say, at the end of the day, good policy is good politics. And you still like politics. I do, and I like good policy. Haley Barber, thank you very much for stopping by. Steve, I hope it was helpful. And we thank you for listening. The C-SPAN Weekly is available as a free podcast wherever you download your favorite podcast and on the web at cspan.org. 